Welcome to another episode of A Pint with Shoney B. We're in our sponsor's bar. As you know, when we record in New York, we have a sponsor, Stitch Bar and Hands Tooth Bar on 37th and 8th Avenue. Come in here, ask for a pint, mention my name to Nick Cohen, the owner, and you'll get a free pint even if I'm not here to enjoy it with you. But I am having a pint today of, of Guinness with <laughs> an old friend of mine, a Canadian, the first Canadian to be on pint with Johnny B, believe it or not. That's great. His name is Colin Duma. Colin is a advertising guy, a guy who has been at the forefront of the developments in digital and new media. He currently works at Hasbro in charge of global media. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. At OMD for Hasbro. At OMD. OMD is a, what would be called a media independent, I suppose. Is that right? We're the media agency for Hasbro now, but, uh, Apple's the biggest client, Apple okay. and McDonald's. Where in Canada are you from? Originally, I was from this little town called Norwich. It's not the England one, but it is no. very near London. Not the England one. Exactly. Um, and Stratford, not the England not one. Not the England one. There is a Scotland up the road. I'm not kidding. Uh, there's the even Scotland. a Thames River that goes through London in Ontario. So, so. so what was it like growing up there in Norwich? It was a small town. I spent a lot of time uh, in my youth. You can make $2,000 in a summer by priming tobacco. So what does I, that mean? Well, someone's got to pick it off the plant. Really? <laughs> yeah. So I worked in the fields mostly when I was a kid. So you were a kid picking tobacco? Yeah, priming. How many days? Like, priming sounds like just a fancy word for picking, isn't it? It is, you know, but it's the word. <laughs> <laughs> and like, what was that like? Was it like you go to it was it was a slave labor? It's basically slave labor. Canadians wised up to how much work it was. You got paid 70 bucks a day. As a, as a teenager, that's enough to keep your car on the road for the year. You yeah. know? The, they would used to hire in workers from different countries. You couldn't get anybody to come out of those fields. It was, too, it was back-breaking labor. Yeah. So then you had Mexicans started coming. Then it was Jamaicans. And then one year, it was Irish. These guys came. They were fantastic guys from Dublin. Five of them, or six of them, came across. Two of them were brothers. There was a poster in their university that said, holiday slash work term. I can actually hear the conversation at home. You get free smokes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Oh, I get to work in the fields. All yeah. the tobacco I can we get. We can roll our own. It's hardly tobacco <laughs> yeah, you yeah. can smoke. No, I know. <laughs> like, and, and these poor bastards like ended up sleeping on the floor of a garage at this wow. farmer's place in Canada. You know, you get paid seventy bucks a day, but you got a bonus yeah. of an extra ten dollars a day. So, but you didn't get the bonus if you didn't finish the season. And you had to pay for your own flight back. Was it like so, 12 years of slave where you come in at the end? Pretty much. It's, but it's like six weeks of slave. The, the one with the small fingers gets the big boneless and doesn't get whipped. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's really unfortunately true. Um, and, and so... And, I did it voluntarily. And you, was this just during your summers in school? Yeah. school? Yeah. Harvest was uh, first day of August to Labor Day. You had yeah. to get as much in before the first frost. And uh, as soon as wow. the frost hit, it was over. Whatever was left. And what was your fo- what were your folks? Were they w- working the land or what was? No, the- no. My dad was police. Uh-huh. My mom was a nurse. Right. Very okay. blue collar family. Okay. He gave that twenty some odd years and quit for the, a lot of the reasons of why. Was he a manty? No, not that cool. Right. He was okay. a town cop in Woodstock. Okay. Um, a townie. He he had a good career, but I think he he kind of ended up running away. Same reason that most of us do in their forties. So like, yeah. You become aware. And then yeah. you're like, fuck this, and you split. One right? time around. Yeah. So where did he run to? Yeah, he, he just odd job guy. He became Kramer. He delivered water to the Indian Reserves, worked in a flower place. Like, not a store, but like a greenhouse, growing yeah, flowers. Yeah. Like, he just it was all over the place. And he just moved. I just moved him, actually, uh, last summer to the East Coast, Nova Scotia, where he and my mom are now retired and looking at the ocean every day. So, right. Um, 
that's a good spot for him to be. Nice up there. Cold, but nice. Were you conscious when you were younger of coming from a blue-collar background that it was... Was there any time in your life when you went, I could get out of here? I've always sort of followed what's interesting. I never had a career plan. Uh, I still don't. (laughs) A common thread through a lot of my guests. (laughs) Exactly, yeah. I was very aware that... I didn't want to stay in the area because the only future would be some sort of manufacturing job, which I would have to change every every couple of years as the factories moved around. You know, most of my friends from that era are still there doing that. Yeah. And so for me, it was more like get to Toronto. If yeah. you can get to Toronto, then you can find your, your footing and then figure out what you really want to do. It's interesting you say a lot of your friends are still there. I have the same thing. I have a little village called Cabin Tilly, south of Dublin. And I, I didn't leave till I was 28. And the worst people in the world were those who had gone away and would come back at Christmas. And, with, you know, it was a bit like the Iceman cometh, you know. Yeah, yeah. And you'd be in the pub and this guy would come in and go, why are you not in yeah. Chicago or something? Yeah. Go, fuck off, dude. Exactly. Just don't come home if you exactly. don't want to. Yeah, yeah. And I was really conscious that you don't go home and be that big. No, don't and, be and that also, guy. I also look at a lot of my friends. I mean, I c- couldn't raise a family. I mean, I know you have a family, but... I couldn't raise one. I just wasn't my speed. I didn't want to do it, and, and I wanted to see the world. And it's horses for courses. And you, yeah. I'm fully respectful of a lot of my friends who raised ten, five, six children, whatever. Sure, it is. Ten. And, uh, well, I did you guys? Know, know that, that was the local girl. They've gone up. So, so you, you, you both, you went to just college to Toronto, did you? I went to uh, sort of an art school in. Ottawa. I studied animation and it was uh, cartooning and right. you know scene design. I wasn't really good at it. Mm-hmm. I think you have to be honest with yourself. The other thing to say about 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 that is that you you look back on on the time of looking at a job like cartooning or uh, in my case I was vaguely interested in comedy and I did a bit of stand up in Dublin. But you realize as well, yes, you're not good enough, but also it's really hard. It's really hard. You know, I it's mean, it's really like if I had to look back today, I'd probably go, I should have stuck at it because I was scared of it because it was so hard. Yeah. But I'm very in awe of the people who are journeyman comics or journeyman sure. artists or cartoonists who just said, this is what I'm going to do. And yeah. you have to really love it. It's like anything. You do. That's the trade-off. You get found out. If you, you do get found out. If it's, not, if, if it's not really you, you believe me, the world will know. Mm. And when I hit the reality of a bigger city and my talents weren't the best in the area anymore, in this area, you know, sure, I could draw a great drawing. The, the insight is true. You have to, you realize in your heart that you're not good enough. Yeah. Uh, I was but that's that. okay because you've got to find your thing, yeah. you know, whatever your thing is. I was interested I as well, I was interested as well <laughs> that you, get, you seem to be one of those people who could feel it coming, could feel something with the digital thing. Because oh, really, yeah. even in 94, I mean, we didn't have... Yeah, we had basic internet, but that yeah. was it. You know, it was di- it was squeaky modems and it was all that. I mean, yeah, it was really... A buddy of mine had a, an Atari computer with the... You know, you put the phone on it. It was a modem yeah, where you yeah, quite yeah, literally yeah. took the receiver yeah. off, the sparky, yeah. you know, put it on there. And he would dial up somebody and, like, you know, I'm in Canada and... He'd, well, here's some guy in like Africa or some probably not Africa, but somewhere else. Yeah, and Hong uh, Kong. And, uh, Hong Kong, probably yeah. a good choice. And um, <laughs> he told me just to type a message. This guy's on the other end, and I realized I was typing in real time to the other end. 
it's, it, it was fascinating to me that that was possible. Yeah. I could see the scale. Yeah. And it, to me, it was also inevitable that the technology would catch up to the sort of requirements yeah. of the graphics and like all the hipsters like the 8-bit stuff from that era now. Um, but you know what those magazines as well that used to come out where you, the magazine itself was just full of code for a game and people yeah. would just spend hours right. typing the whole code into their yeah BBC. and those people are all billionaires now like, probably they are I hate <laughs> them all no no I don't hate them because they, they found their thing I remember like, one time <laughs> I had like I had like a cassette tape and I, I, I played it there was a cassette tape that used to have code and squeaks and I, I just put it up to the speaker of a computer and pressed play but this is not going to work and right. it did work yeah, and suddenly yeah. Defender was in the computer yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and you can do that with you too now on your iPod. Apparently, it shows up too. I know, even no. with that asking. The other side of you, though, is you're still a painter and you're also interested in steampunk. Being interested in steampunk is interesting because a lot of people don't know what it is. I only have a vague idea. What is what is that? It's another one of those sort of nerdy subcultures. I think Jules Verne or the Nautilus. It's the easiest way. Most people are familiar with that. Jules Verne wrote in the Victorian era about a nuclear submarine. The thing hadn't been invented yet. This thing that could survive for months underwater was self-reliant on its power. You know, yeah. it didn't have to come up for diesel or anything. And submarines were even back then just a dream. They weren't yeah. a reality. And so they were very brass and ornate and Victorian. A lot of pipes. A lot of pipes, a lot of like uh, knobs and, and uh, whistles and steam, uh, usually steam-powered. Sort of like an alternate history where, for the most part, the gasoline engine was never invented. Right. So there's a, there's a great deal of fiction written around this and a great deal of... I read recently, again, The Time Machine by H.G. Wells, which is a similar yeah. kind of thing. Yeah, perfect. Mental, exactly. mental. He hits the wrong button towards the end and ends up like trillion years into yeah, the future at the end of time. A frown. Yeah, yeah, I know. Uh, but it, what was interesting to it to me was, I don't know when it was written, maybe uh, 1900s, early, whatever, tw- 20s, I don't know exactly, I should know that, but it felt that it was, you could, you know, you, when you trace back through to some of these books, maybe the Jules Verne stuff, you yeah, can yeah. actually see a, an idea that is that is that is mutated but has come somewhere and you can trace it back to these things is that part of it yeah absolutely i i love that you know people hold their iphones and their samsungs or whatever and they it's a tricorder it's not that different you know there people read science fiction of that era it was jules Verne. it wasn't like classic literature then it was nouveau i read an interesting article about the theory of whether or not we're going to go through a period of stagnation and depression based on the fact that even though we feel like we're in a very innovative period of time that we're actually not and that you know if you take over the last 200 years there's been five things that have been important or maybe six there's been light there's been the the, the engines there's been internal sewerage right you know there's been uh, the computer that we're actually just taking if you take the difference between when a wheel was invented and when the motor car was, came out or when electricity was invented and the light bulb, it's a 30-40 year period yeah. and that we're still dabbling in this area but yeah. we still have the specter of inequality, climate problems, I don't know, dodgy politics and you know, going on around us. One argument says that the human 
mind and condition is now uh, in a place where it has the resources to think its way into interesting new areas and the other says well this is other things are just going to make things worse and worse where do you feel on optimism versus pessimism I'm a bit old school in the sense that I don't think that technology is going to solve our problems I think we are in a depression the state of things is depressing yeah and, I agree you know, my, one of my favorite guys right now is Neil deGrasse Tyson. You ever yeah. listen to him? Well, I watched his remake of uh, Cosmos, Cosmos, which is yeah. brilliant. I love this guy. It's brilliant to see Cosmos remade with technology. Yeah, exactly. Fantastic. <laughs> yeah, and, and apparently he was a protege of Carl yeah. Sagan in the yeah, first place. Right. I've seen him speak a few times, you know, living in New York. He gets He's very upbeat. Very upbeat. Very upbeat. And also, he's yeah. sick of the stupid. Yeah. He's sick of the war on intelligence. I think that's really what the problem is. Mm. I think there's an outright war on intelligence and there used to be a respect for being able to accomplish a trade to be really good at it yeah to be able to To be be, smart to be smart yeah and and so there's sort of a negativity around hipsters like you know oh they're 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 trying too hard but but i kind of respect that at least they're trying to understand that sort of craft side i don't mind paying you know five bucks for a bottle of water if they meant that they cleaned it with a way that didn't wreck the world with mm. bleach or something mm. you know mm. or that uh, buying a ten dollar um, bar of soap if it meant that i'm not destroying my house or my kids yeah. health by yeah. using it that's the kind of thing where i feel like the economy and our own happiness has to shift towards a little bit more i don't think it's going to get better with the globalization i think it's the co- the corporations are just getting started because they're starting to see the scale, so I don't think it's good news. So well, I think I think terribly depressing. I, well, I think we've moved. I, I'm more in alignment with you. One of the observations I have is that we have a a situation where if you're not saying what's politically correct and you're challenging thinking in certain areas, yeah. you're a bigot or you're a racist or you're whatever. Right. And so you are shut down by you know regressive leftism, yeah, yeah. which is this idea that. A great example is Islam. You know, it's like no one mentions Islam. It's yeah. not Islam's a peaceful religion, you know, right. but it's not really. If you, <laughs> if you look at it, and and, and also Islam has has a bunch of uh, tenets that say, you know, if you do this, you will go to heaven and, and paradise. Yeah, I'm not hearing a huge amount of Islam coming out right. from Islam saying, "Hey, we're going to try and shut these down." Sorry about all these problems that we're having. I guess it is a minority, but as soon as you put the word Islam in, you're a bigot. As someone said, when they drop the dirty bomb somewhere, whether it's an Islamic terrorist or just a crazy chap from Oklahoma, sorry, Oklahomans who are listening, um, <laughs> you know, we'll all be discussing whether transvestites are allowed to use the uh, ladies' toilet. With right. apologies to all uh, cross-dressing and uh, transvestites and transsexuals who may be listening. But we're not focusing on the bigger issues. We're not focusing but on any issues. We're not, yeah, we're, but we're, we're, we're kind of in fear of students are able to get, I should say, oh, you know, I'm, I'm offended by this book. I'm offended by Huckleberry Finn because of the N-word or, yeah. or whatever. It's like, and you want to be a lawyer? You yeah. better be bloody yes, thick-skinned and understand what that N-word means yeah. then and today and how, instead of banning the book yeah. because you're a student and you have the internet. Yeah, and you're, and you're sensitive. There's definitely... A real problem for me. The term political correctness is kindness. That's you know, nice. Yeah, I, I substitute it. Yeah. Oh, you're just making me be politically correct. No, I'm asking you to be kind. Yeah. So if somebody says there's a problem with Islam, let's have a conversation. I don't know yeah. that that's a problem for a guy like me, but if somebody's 
coming in like Trump and saying, you know, all Mexicans are rapists. Mm. I'm saying it straight. It's not saying it straight. Yeah. You're just being an asshole. You know, well, and you're trying I, you to know, incite riots. It's, it's, it know? sounds like when you have this discussion yeah. about Mexicans in, in tobacco fields or Islam, yeah. you then suddenly get put into Trump's camp. Absolutely not. No, not Trump's at all. Camp. Trump is spilling bile. He's giving the real bigoted racist Americans permission. a permission yeah, to absolutely. voice their racism yeah. and their bigotry. Anything, but the same thing out. is when you're trying to have an intelligent conversation, we're on this kind of tenter hook where I, I love the way you're positioning a political this is kindness because kindness, I think, is probably one of the greatest ways you could go about living your life. Yeah. If you can wake up or go to bed every night and say, I wasn't an asshole. I wasn't being yeah. a dick to people. I can look myself in the mirror. I was kind. It's such a beautiful word. And yeah. it's the way we live in peace, without getting all right on, it's the way we can all live in peace and yeah. harmony together. Yeah. Uh, but as soon as you have discussion that comes out, it can quickly degenerate into, oh, this guy's being unkind or he's being politically incorrect. Yeah. When actually, we do need to have some discussions across the planet, climate change, gun control, yeah. that are difficult. Yeah. And you have to be a little bit spiky in you order do. to get changed happening. And, and also recognize that your position at the end of the conversation might not be the same as it started. And I don't know that anybody's willing to do that anymore. Yeah. I mean, it seems of course, like the subtext to all this is the great parallel between Canada, where you come from, and mm-hmm. America. And how, what's your view on how Canada has not developed the same symptoms of malaise that maybe exist down in America? Canada isn't born out of conflict. There's always been trouble, and Canada did horrible things to the natives that were living there before the Europeans, just like Americans did and do. Um, I mean, you have a spiky French, English, Quebec. Yeah, there's always been that sort of ongoing challenge. But I think that's a a cultural fight. I find it interesting that in Quebec, with with the French side, they're very open to the American culture. They're just not open to the rest of Canadian culture. And it creates this really interesting divisiveness. And Quebec came very close to separating from Canada not that long ago. In a referendum, it was 51 to 49 to stay together. As someone looking in on Canada, which is a place I love and love visiting there, I think the the whole French thing adds this huge dimension of richness to the country. It does. It just adds this kind of, you know, je ne sais quoi. Okay, imagine the the disdain of the average Texan for Mexicans. And where did that come from? And at yeah. one point in history, there was a line that had to be drawn between, yeah. you know, Texas and Mexico. Yeah. Yeah. And I think Quebec has that. However, the difference in Canada is that when the line was drawn, it was more like a bar fight. I mean, the, the war was short between the French and English. Yeah. But the one difference in where our American history differs uh, with the Canadian history is that the uh, victors didn't kill everybody. That culture was allowed to go on. That yeah. wasn't homogenized. It's totally grossly generalized in saying that, but yeah. uh, because there's totally. But it's a great big generalization when it comes to war. It is the intention of the victor. Quite a lot of the Middle Eastern war that's developing now is against the West. But you know what would have happened if, say, Germany had won the war? Yeah. And what did happen to Germany because they lost the war? No one went into Germany and raped and pillaged. And they, no. re- they rebuilt it. Right? Yeah. So the intention of the person in charge... Japan and Germany came up pretty good. They did. <laughs> you know, they they did. did. <laughs> you know, uh, what, what would have happened to Poland and Britain if Germany, if the Nazis had taken over? Yeah. You know, Very different answer yeah. for all the errors. And there were huge errors yeah, in Iran some, and couple Afghanistan. Big ones. Yeah. Yeah. But the, the, the intention was not to go in with, 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 with America and just 
you know, yeah, maybe there was oil issues and stuff, but it wasn't to take over the whole country and rape the women and kill people no. and cause genocide and yeah. whatever. It was to say, look, this is fucking out of control, in our opinion. Yeah. Maybe we're wrong or yeah. maybe we're not wrong. Take it down. Canada invented the UN peacekeeping force. That's a mm. Lester Pearson's sort of thing. Yeah. You know, the blue helmets and all that. That was a big thing. Canada and Norway, probably the, yeah. two, the two best civil well, rights. Canada countries. used to be known Human for that. Yeah. But then we went through this 10 years of a really horrible government that the previous administration, like, they stuck their finger up, their middle finger up to to Bush about Iraq. We're not getting involved with that crap. Yeah. You got nothing on them. Yeah. And it was the right choice, yeah. I think. But Afghanistan was something important because yeah. real people, real civilians were getting hurt. So how can we help? And yeah. that's a that's yeah. a different approach. Where ISIS now, you know, they're Canada's backing away. And they're saying, even though there's been terrorist attacks in Canada, there's, you know, somebody stormed Parliament Hill and, you know, I they had to shoot him dead. It's not like it's not. There are these ballot, what I would call middle countries that, you know, I would probably include Canada. I would hopefully include Ireland, uh, Norway, some of the Scandi countries that, you know, they seem to, in my view, whatever they're doing, and quite a lot of them are left of center, socialist kind of driven. Yeah. Michael Moore's new movie, etc. But, you know, there's a there is a way of doing it that that a lot of these bigger countries haven't really tried properly. And there cool. are examples of countries who have done it quite well. Yeah. And, you know, I, I, if you want to try and have an optimistic view, maybe the, maybe there is something in that, that there's a, as someone says, proof of concept. Right, right. And um, backing on track to, yeah. to you, uh, you, you, so you were in college, and then how did you get into the ad game, or what, what happened? <coughs> well, I just grew up with the internet, so first it was brochures, like brochureware, they used to call it, put up your website for your yeah. company. yeah. And then it evolved into um, basic e-commerce. Mm. I worked at this little startup shop called Macro. We were so cool. We, hit the, we set the trend of going out of business. It was, it was fishy the, from the start. They're very fishy from the start. <laughs> there were a bunch Sorry. of art school kids. No, that's pretty much it. There were a bunch of art school kids that came up with something really awesome as a formula and a new sort of model for an agency. They were one of the very first digital agencies. Yeah. That's all they focused on. It was yeah. it was an era of just art on the internet, trying to figure out what it's for. Yeah. And you know you got to eat crow at the beginning and just do what you have to do but I, I went with it I, yeah. I, I consciously went with that instead of animation despite my education I thought look I think this is the future yeah. for me and then the next move for me was advertising it's just that's what that's what happened the internet was catching up now advertising is like oh shit we need to do some ads so I worked for um, well there was that time when people like you were just like there wasn't couldn't get enough of them because it was like get people who know about digital you know yeah well, and that's and how you I got all the jobs write your own thing yeah, <laughs> yeah, know, yeah, yeah, yeah. and you just kind of so I rode that wave I admit I surfed that wave mm. for my whole career I, and I was just trying to stay ahead of the wave um, but it's not it's more than that because when you're when you make that you know a lot of, a lot of the sort of topics we touch on here are career based why people made decisions and a lot of it is Oh, you just—it's kind of hindsight discussion. Yeah, of course. But, but when you're when you're actually in that, say, I'm making a punt on the future, being in this area, you're actually getting up every day. You're you're reading Wired, and you're yeah, you're you're, right. you're you're taking in, you're sponging. Yeah. And so you are becoming, and you're doing the ten thousand hours. You're becoming an expert oh, yeah. in this yeah. area. So yeah. you, a lot of people who have been in in fields go, well, you know, I got lucky. But like, you, you make your own luck because you you live and breathe it. You know, banner ads, microsites, emails, banner ads, microsites, emails. I yeah. launch a car, they need a banner ad, they need a microsite, they need an email. Yeah. You know, it was always the same formula. Yeah. It got boring pretty fast, yeah. but it was also comfortable. Yeah. And I found myself getting way too comfortable. My mind likes to wander, so I ended up digging into the web really deep to find out where I could push the envelope. And Flickr, I think, it was the first social site I really saw. And right. I'm like, holy shit, you can publish on this platform mm. and... You don't need to be an engineer. 
you know, that to me was a game changer. And so it wasn't long before I quit my job, hoping to land the next gig in that. Mm. And all I did was do what you're doing. I started blogging about it. I had a little blog going. The blog's still up, and it hasn't been updated in five, six years. But yeah. the but at that time, I updated it, it, whatever I was learning. And because I was posting what I was learning, people saw me as the expert, even though they knew as much as I did if they read the blog. <laughs> you know, di- like, digital archaeologists <laughs> of the future will yeah, see they will dig it up. And it was, it was fascinating. One day, um, I, I saw a spike in my, my numbers from, uh, from Seattle. Like suddenly somebody in Seattle saw it and I got like 7,000 views of all my, like I don't know how many individuals, probably right. 500 individuals. Somebody's passing it around in Seattle. Mm. And then I got a hand letter, handwritten letter from Bill Gates inviting me to New York to mm. meet with him and uh, uh, for this round table conversation that he had wow. with a bunch of like Madison Avenue heavy hitters, Jan yeah. Leth from, uh, from Ogilvy and and I was a like group creative director sitting in a room full of Madison Avenue giants yeah. and I'm like holy fuck and, yeah. I, and afterwards I said to the Corbus the guy who I knew from Corbus I said how did I get here he said yeah I forwarded you around that was the email flirt, or the yeah. spike he said you're the only one who's talking about in the room nobody knows what they're talking about and I'm like you think I know what I'm talking about yeah, like you know sure. but you know I had everybody fooled but that gave me the, the confidence I needed to yeah. quit my job and figure out what's next for me yeah. you came down to New York we're skipping a few years, but you came down yeah. to New York, which is where I met you on, on the Gillette business with BBDO. What was the, and you just got married and you just had a kid. So what was the transition for you like moving from Canada to America and from Toronto to New York? And what observations have you got there? If I was going to be totally honest, I think it was at first a mistake um, to come here because I believed I was coming to some sort of Mecca. Where I was was much more creative opportunity because there's less egos involved. And it's nimbler. Much nimbler, yeah. much more flexible. And there's this sort of grass is greener attitude. Yeah. I realized really quickly that the um, people on the other end of the phone, if you work in, in markets and you're calling New York, the people in New York are just as fallible and just as goofy and yeah. just as kind of confused as you are. Mm-hmm. And if they're shouting out orders, really all New York ever wants is solutions to their problems. Mm. And, um, and you're either a solution or you're a problem. And I find that actually you can appease New York real easily just by going playing playing along Thank and then doing what you need to do in your local market. And yeah. um, that's a real big insight for me having worked on both sides now. But moving my family here to your to the to I guess maybe the real part of the question was was difficult. You can't get paid unless you have a social insurance number our social security number mm-hmm. in the U.S. And mine wasn't coming. I'd waited six weeks, and I'd been in, a, in the U.S. now six weeks, and I still didn't have one, which meant I wasn't getting paid. The and company, this, it must be said, was a transfer. So your old company could have technically still kept paying you, but they didn't. They yeah. could have, but they didn't, exactly, because they're different P&Ls. So I was I know the story behind this, and I know the there's, there's two things. Oh, it's Sarbanes-Oxyart. They're different P&Ls. All excuses by accountants to just fuck with people. They are. I'm telling you, I was right on the edge of my credit. I was right on the edge of everything. I was mm. stressed out. I'm like, what the fuck? I just do to my family. I had no dollars left in my name. My mm. house was sold. It was all now invested in rent, yeah. for God's sakes, whatever I got out of that. When it settled, it was fine. Right. It doesn't surprise me that people that have English not as their first language have a hard time oh, yeah. integrating into the U.S. because it is a bullshit bureaucratic it country. Is. It is. Um, very difficult to crack. Mm. So I think there's this all these myths about what I thought America was going to be: mm. cheaper healthcare, lower taxes, uh, sort of better lifestyle. None of those have come true. However, now I've been here long enough where I can call New York home. So now it becomes familiar. It's not an alien city anymore. 
I walk down the streets and I can say hello to 50 people and his neighbors, you know, and, you know, it becomes a really You'd real You'd be that place. weird guy saying hello to people in the streets. Yeah. <laughs> joking. Well, I'll tell you, look, I, I moved into... Um, Where are you living in New York? I live, I live in Brooklyn. I live in a place called uh, Clinton Hill. It was known sort of in the 90s as the black bohemia. Yeah. Spike Lee, Chris Rock, like those kinds right. of guys came from that neighborhood. And so I'm, I'm waiting, moving in. And that's, that's really what happened. Out people, isn't I'm it? a honky ad guy. Yeah. I moved into this neighborhood, <laughs> and tr- truthfully, there's it's going through a massive gentrification, and that's a really hard thing for for people that are living there and they've been there for their whole lives to see mm-hmm. the rent shoot through the roof like mm-hmm. that. And there's nowhere to go. And mm-hmm. I really feel for those people. And you see a lot of migration out of Brooklyn, and a lot of the culture leave as well. But also a lot of the violence and a lot of the crap that goes with poverty, right? Yeah. But it's interesting. Rosie Perez still lives in the neighborhood, and it's just I only say that because. She tweeted, and my wife saw this tweet, that she's not liking the tone of the new people Ew. in the neighborhood. And I was, I was like, holy, holy shit. Like, I'm the new people. Yeah. And I noticed when I first moved... There goes the neighborhood. There goes the neighborhood. Exactly. <laughs> when I, I noticed when I first moved there that as a Canadian and the whole sort of racial tension that goes on in the U.S., it's like, it's, it's not my fight. I don't understand the culture and how I'm supposed to behave. Yeah. So I was very stiff walking down the street. And yeah. I wouldn't cross the street if there's teenagers or something. But, you know, yeah. you're very aware, yeah. very hyper-aware. And then it, it, it dawned on me that I was being stupid, yeah. that, it, that she's right, that I am being standoffish. Yeah. And so I stopped and I started saying hello. Okay. And that was enough to make it feel like home because okay. everybody said hello back. And yeah. before you know it, I'm part of the neighborhood. I was no longer an observer. I was a yeah. participant. Yeah. That's really important. What would you say to uh, your son as Finn or your younger self looking back? One of the things we try and tap into here is just what sort of wisdom have you learned? What would be a couple of things that you would say to your younger self or to your boy when he gets old? I think that you have to watch out for ambition. It's something my dad warned me of and I didn't listen to. What does that mean? He Ambition is a double-edged sword. My dad was a cop and he was a constable, a first-class constable, which is basically entry-level for his whole career. Never once accepted a promotion, never once moved up the chain. Because Why wouldn't he have accepted a promotion? Because the further up the chain they get, the more in Excel you get. The, the further away you get from the craft, he was interested in being a cop because he was interested in helping people. Okay. And the higher up in your promotions you get, the less you're going to do that. What and about now, the logic that you can climb up the ladder knowing what you know about grassroots and make things better? <laughs> you have to change the system from yeah. within. I haven't seen that work yet. <laughs> <laughs> There's my old ideolo- ideology coming yeah. before again. How's that work? Well, I mean, I'm not very well. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, so don't ambition know. is a double-edged sword. So, so what does the take out of that mean? The, the art director, I miss the art director. There was people that I saw as like the 50-year-old art director who I saw as a bit of a loser when I was a younger guy. Uh, and I'm like, now I see them as the wise guy. Yeah. Like the one who said, look, I can have a, a fantastic career yeah being the best art director on the planet and push my, my craft and push my limits and push design and understand fonts and get deeper into fonts. There's a million places, photography, animation, production, wherever angle you want, music, you can do all of that as an art director. But then when you're a creative director, you're a manager. It's a whole other game. I had a bit of that. I mean, I, I, I had a, a brief moment at the big boys table and didn't like it at all, you know, back yeah. in the day. And, you know, I've, pretty much the industry has spat me out which I'm okay with but it's a bit like the Peter principle you see a lot of people who actually if they had gone down to their previous position they would be a far more 
um, relevant and worthwhile person to have on the team yes. then now that they are in, in charge of a department or yes. whatever. Yeah, so yes. I get that. What other things? Um, this is this all is hyper cliche to hear from a guy who's in his 40s or 50s to say this to a younger person, but I do think it'll come if you find the passion. Find that thing you're interested in and just riff on it and riff on it. And it's okay. Actually, it's better if it's not what everybody else is doing. Yeah. Um, and I think that Culturally, it's more acceptable to be different now than it was when I was younger. Everybody in my town was a hockey player or like, you know, a farmer. or, a, yeah. And I just was a weirdo in that way. Yeah. But friendly to everyone, so I was no one's enemy. For me, I wasn't really anyone's friend either. For me, yeah. it was really about trying to find my place because, so find your community, find your angle, and just get, get be brilliant at what you do. And honestly, you know it as well as I do, eventually money will come. But that's sort of like the artsy-fartsy in me. And yeah. what if it doesn't? I'm kind of like, so what, looking back? You know what I mean? What if it doesn't come? What if, what if you spend your life being a painter so you don't have a house in Brooklyn or you don't have a $500 shoes? Who fucking cares? Like, honestly, yeah. you might have a really great cabin in the woods and you might have, you know, uh, wood in the fire. I don't know that it's that different. So the opportunity, I think, for happiness is, is where I would put in a prediction as well as nostalgia and say that we don't need to change the world. Hmm. I don't know why everybody feels like they need to. It's a Gen X thing that makes us cynical yeah. because we're not going to be able to. These new people, the young kids, younger than those guys, the younger kids, my kid, I'm just going to say, like, I don't care if you want to backpack through Europe for 20 years. Hmm. I don't care if you want to um, go to college and be a lawyer. I really just genuinely want to be happy. And so I'm going to tell him to take whatever courses he finds easiest in high school. Not because it doesn't matter what your grades are, because if you find it easy, that's probably where your passion is. If math is nothing to you, holy shit, take math, man. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, but if it's really hard to you, don't was, fucking take uh, math. Math, not meth. Yeah, math, exactly. <laughs> yeah. You see what I mean? Like for me, I just I spent all my time in, in high school in media classes, art classes, music classes, like because that was easy to me. There is an optimisticness to this because the parents of the past pushed children to f- uh, formality or, or, yeah. or, or conformity or careers they can boast to other people about yeah. or careers that they know will probably pay okay. Yeah. But what they fail to think is this thing about you're pushing your kid into possibly boredom or possible ennui or possible this whole idea that 25, 30, 40 years ago by the way, I mean, what the fuck just happened and then I'm about to die. That's the worst nightmare of the world, I think. That's a good place to end it, Colin yeah. Duma. Thank you so much for appearing on a point with Shawnee V. And uh, we didn't talk too much about advertising. We uh, talked about God. life, which is what <laughs> I'm trying to make these more about. So uh, good luck with the future. And uh, we'll have another point next time. You. Perfect. Thanks, Sean. Bye. Cheers.